Ari Rosenbaum here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast this week's topic. We're going to talk about sort of my unfiltered um, 401k views about what's going on now, uh, the kind of views that uh, keep me out of the uh, speaking uh, gigs at uh, large national conferences. Um, but uh, first things first. We're going to have some live events. We got a uh, go to that 4kcite.com for further information. We got the National Virtual Conference, 26th, 27th of January, two bucks, 23 cents to be a part of it. Uh, good time had by all, two days of events. We're booking providers to be a part of it, uh, you know, um, over time. And uh, it just, uh, it's going to be interesting. And obviously, for two bucks and 23 cents, cheap to sign on. You'll get a YouTube feed uh, if you, you know, have to miss out or whatnot. Uh, no food, no stadium tour, uh, none of that kind of stuff. Just uh, a lot of plant providers uh, giving away content on how to grow your business. And, of course, we're booked for May the 3rd in Detroit. Uh, this week, uh, I should know if uh, I'll be able to – well, next couple weeks, I'll see if I'll be able to – book Oakland or not for 2023. If we don't go to Oakland, then we're going to have to probably go to Arlington, Texas in April. We'll see how that goes. And I have uh, uh, a future Hall of Famer working on seeing if we could book San Diego for 2023. We'll see if that happens. Milwaukee is certainly going to happen one way or the other. It's just a matter of filling out the you know date card and whatnot. Go to that 4 for further information. Um, as far as my big mouth, um, I just kind of don't filter myself, uh, in terms of expressing my viewpoints in this business. This goes back to, you know, college and law school, college, I worked for the school paper. Um, I had a weekly column in the Stony Brook Statesman, won an award for it, uh, one of my, <laughs> I would say top 10 achievements in my career, I gotta say, Winning uh, the student Martin Buskin Award for Student Journalism without having ever taken a journalism class in college. Um, I won that year for two reasons. Number one, I didn't have a very, I, I hate to throw some of my friends on the bus at the Statesman, I, I didn't have much competition that year. And number two, um, I wrote a very good uh, column, um, school paper. They wanted to run um, a Holocaust revisionist advertisement in the newspaper. And I uh, I think if you know a little bit of my history, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, my grandfather, who I'm named after, was not a survivor. He was a victim. All my great-grandparents died in the Holocaust. Um, great uncles, great aunts, um, you know, just if you count just great uncles and aunts. My grandfather on my mother's side had about uh, five or six siblings, uh, five to, about six siblings who perished. Uh, my grandmother was uh, one of four children. Only her and her brother, her younger brother survived. Two brothers died. Um, so, you know, wrote an article about that because I was vehemently opposed to it. And, you know, that got me the award. But Obviously, law school got a big mouth too. I was the editor, uh, executive editor of the American Jurist, which was a law school news magazine, and um, I, I raised a, a lot of hell in that law school and whatnot. And um, 
you know, I, I think it'd probably be easier. You know, it, it's kind of double-edged sword for being outspoken. I, I think if I wasn't so outspoken, I don't think I'd have uh, have developed such a niche in the retirement plan business with my own practice. But it's a double-edged sword because I think that, you know, being um, very opinionated uh, drives people away. Because, you know, ultimately people have trouble with opinions that they disagree. I mean, you see all the time on Twitter or Facebook and whatnot, and, you know, if, God forbid you, somebody says how wonderful a place is and you say, well, I, I don't, I don't really like the, the pizza over there or whatever it is, or the bagel over there. And people get into these hostile arguments because, you know, opinions that are different, people can't handle it, uh, because a lot of people are just insecure. Um, and, and, that's that's a problem, and you know I don't I'm I'm not insecure. Uh, I have my own you know mishigas as they say in Yiddish, um, but insecurity is not one of them. And you know, listen, I, I'm 50 years old, and I'm not going to change. And whatever time left I got in this plan business, which you know hopefully is another 20, 25 years, um, you know, it is what it is. And uh, uh, as long as I have a audience. And I haven't ticked off everybody away, um, and I still see I, I still have a loyal audience on this podcast. Still, same consistent number. Some episodes are better than others. Uh, I'll continue saying my piece. And the first thing, unfiltered, uncensored, is why would anybody offer an ESG fund in a four hundred one k plan? That's my uh, that's my two cents. Um, you know, and I'm not. This isn't, this isn't some right some right wing um, diatribe against the issues funds. Listen, I, I drive a Prius V uh, for the last ten years. Um, uh, this upcoming week will be ten years that I've had the vehicle. Uh, great car. Um, I uh, I like to recycle, uh, and uh, I'm a big fan of Impossible Burgers and other vegan stuff. But I don't understand why there's a push for ESG funds. Environmental, social, and governance funds. Uh, the problem, obviously, is number one: the proper use of ESG funds that isn't going to put the fiduciary at risk is based on a rule that is just going to be dependent on who is in the White House. Now, you know we have the upcoming midterms. Uh, this episode drops on Friday. The midterm elections are on Tuesday, and you know if you know who's going to be in charge on Tuesday, it doesn't mean who's going to be in charge of the White House come January 20th, 2025. Everybody uh, thinks Biden is dead uh, politically, but, you know, if you look at history, they said the same thing about Bill Clinton in 1994. They said the same thing about Obama in 2014. And, uh, you know, look, listen, look what happened. Uh, you know, the, these guys got reelected. So I wouldn't push off Biden or any Democrat um, from, from losing the White House. I'm, I'm just not a betting person. And um, we don't know if it's going to be Trump on the Republican side or DeSantis or who's going to win. I mean, this isn't, this isn't, you know, my politics here. This is just, I have no idea. You know, I wouldn't want to base my... If I'm, a, if I'm an advisor, I, I wouldn't want to base funds on a lineup that uh, may go out of style very, very quickly because of who's in the White House. And, you know, I listen, I understand the interest in ESG funds, but, 
you know, I, 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 I'm a big believer that when it comes time to managing uh, the fun lineup of a retirement plan, plan participants, um, I'm not looking to make statements. I'm looking for the best investment return. So listen, uh, one of my best investments uh, in my private money, ExxonMobil. Um, bought that in April 2020 when when the when the market for oil was was just dead, and I'm I think I'm up 140 percent. Now I wish I put in you know 10 times the money that I did previously, but uh, pushing ESG funds at the expense of better returns, I, I just that's what I see. I, I don't see ESG funds as being the sector that. Um, that, that that's you know the best rate of return. I mean, I, I know people love Tesla, and that's a stock I would stay away from. But I don't know if Tesla. I haven't really looked at ESG funds in a while. I don't know if Tesla is considered an ESG you know type of investment, and that's one of my biggest problems. Um, you get you know there was it's, it's funny. I'm recording today on um, Israeli election day. Um, you know, my grandparents lived in Israel, so I always have an affinity over there, and always have an interest. And, um, they're going today for the fifth time uh, elections in three years. And so the joke about Israelis is, you know, you have two Israelis, you have three political parties. And um, that's how I see about ESG funds. You ask three or four ESG funds about their opinion of what a proper ESG investment is, and you'll get as many opinions. Uh, that's how I see it. And until there's a regulation that uh, is going to be pretty hard to withdraw or, or, or you know, take back. Uh, it's not something I would push. It's just, it's just, I, I don't know, I don't understand the interest. And to me, ESG funds are, are a sector fund, and I, I don't really know if sector funds are really that great of an idea in a 401k plan. Why is that? Because, you know, I started this business when everybody went a technology fund, and we saw what happened when the dot-bomb era uh, erupted in 2000, 2001. So I, I, it's just, it's not something I would recommend. My two cents. Peps, uh, next topic, Peps. Uh, obviously, it's a slow process of building. You know, uh, field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. Um, I, I don't think that that's necessarily true with uh, with Peps, with the pooled employer plans. Uh, pooled employer plans are no different than the old open MEPs. Uh, the only difference is you got PPP. It's part of the code. It's allowed. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, I don't see, you know, it's a slow process. I think that's that's my point. You know, I, I, I worked on some PEPs, and it's not easy. And, you know, of course, some of the big PEP promoters will say, oh, well, listen, we, we got this, we got that. That's great. Um, I think the most successful PEPs are people that converted it over from MEPs. Or people that just merely, you know, you have an advisor who says, you know what, I have all these small plans, I want to throw them into one big pep, and that's it. And that's th those are successful peps. I think you'll have more failures than you have successes. I think there's too many plans for too little of a market. However, like some other people in the business who can't stand them, I think they're great. I think they're fantastic. I like options. Um, I like them for the... Uh, Companies that uh, may have to adopt a 401k plan as part of some kind of state mandate uh, or city mandate, those are great. Because if I'm an employer who doesn't trust government, listen, I'm not 
that paranoid like some of those people on Facebook are, but I don't trust government with my money. And uh, these small IRA programs, uh, simple IRA programs, don't save people a whole lot of money. And I don't want to have government involved uh, in picking plan providers. I don't trust it. It's, you know, uh, I'm so jaded from living on Long Island where everybody, uh, you know, has got some job or something just because of, you know, government, because we've got 50 million different tax districts and towns and villages and all that kind of crap. Um, it's just not something that, uh, you know, um, I, I would want to be a part of, and I think that most plan, you know, most employers uh, might consider a PEP, where they, you know, if they're forced to join a plan, they might as well join a plan that, you know, absolves them fiduciary liability, has, you know, much bigger contribution, uh, you know, limits than, you know, than a than a simple IRA program through the state. So, uh, you know, that's my cause for concern, and obviously, plant providers with their PEPs, you know, I always worry about plant providers just cutting their fees, trying to chase assets that they're never going to get to sustain a PEP to be a money-making operation, um, and we'll still we'll still see that. Um, so PEPs are PEPs are a challenge, and you know, it's uh, it's uh, not for everybody. Um, I, I will see. A, I think we'll see a lot of peps close down their doors because they don't have sufficient assets, um, and we'll see what happens. Um, I, a buddy of ours that you know presents at most events, uh, Lyle Himbaugh, said it in January at the time in our Las Vegas conference that he knew of uh, about a dozen peps that had already closed down their doors, and uh, he got that information. I want to say from somebody who's a, a, a big pep RFP guy. Uh, that we all know, and and so that that's why I think that uh, we'll see more and more peps closing down the doors because there won't be success. Um, next on the hit list, stand out, you know, during these volatile times, you know, we're in bearish territory. There have been, you know, obviously October was a decent month for the market. Um, you know, uh, I think that you know if you're an advisor, TPA, it might be a time to stand out and you know kind of offer help to clients. By you know being uh, being <laughs> being uh, uh, just being there, and and helping out the plan sponsors and keeping up to date on what's going on because obviously, you know October was a good month. November I don't know if it's going to be a good month. Interest rates are still a concern, and uh, we'll see uh, we'll see what goes on. Next on the hit list, uh, some of the litigation you see out there against plan sponsors is you know. In my opinion, completely absurd. Um, when I started my own practice in 2010, um, I was quite uh, opinionated about the need for fee disclosure. There was an industry bigwig who thankfully is no longer there anymore, who was vehemently opposed to anybody who criticized the business. I think his organization got uh, swallowed by ARA. He retired, and I'm saying that if you said anything negative about the business, he would just oh, attack you. Um, I had a friend of mine who's an advisor have some kind of motto in his email about the need for disclosure and all that, and the industry spokesperson, whatever he was, said, I'm offended by that comment. I was very, very adamant that we needed fee disclosure. Uh, we got it in 2012. Uh, we had a lot of litigation. 
uh, ABG and I mean not ABG, uh, a, um, uh, Fidelity case and whatnot, and um, some of the other you know cases that have come forth uh, over the years against big plan sponsors. You know when you look at the fees and what they were paying, and you know the unreasonableness and you know revenue sharing and all that kind of stuff. You you were you know you saw well you know I, I think these are great cases. I, I think that the plan participants are are losing out, and uh, they're been aggrieved, and they should get some money out of it. But you see some of these cases now, and it's just I think they're ridiculous. Um, you know there's, there's always that scene. Again, I, I'll talk about it 50 million times, but Donnie Brasco, um, that's a really good Al Pacino, Johnny Depp movie based on a true story. Joe Pistone, uh, FBI agent going undercover to bust the Bonanno family in New York. And there's a scene where the guys are part of a crew. It's, it's kind of an unglamorous life of the mob, of the mafia, that, uh, you know, in movies like Goodfellas and especially The Godfather, it's kind of like... Shown as, you know, wow, these guys are rich and loaded and, you know, they're so powerful. Uh, in Donnie Brasco, I think it shows the opposite, especially when they have to make the weekly take for their crew. And so there's one scene where they're in a bar and they're, you know, hitting um, uh, parking meters to steal the change. And sometimes I feel like that litigation is just kind of like that. Where you have some firms that you know, listen, let's let's exploit one part of the marketplace and see if we can, you know, sue a plan sponsor and and get a quick settlement. And that's how I feel about these BlackRock LifePath index fund lawsuits. Um, you know, these are target date funds. They got higher Morningstar profiles. Uh, the lawsuits that we have involving these cases, you know, argue that plan fiduciaries failed to consider BlackRock's, you know, return potential and and that they only picked them for the lowest fees. And there's a whole, you know, you know, question about glide path and whatnot. I think the, I think the litigation is completely absurd. I think that, again, you have uh, folks uh, just trying to get quick settlements. And, uh, you know, uh, to me, I'm not a big fan of target date funds, never have been. And a debate whether a target date fund should be passive versus one that's active or with different glide paths. I, I think that that's a, an argument that you're not going to win at trial. Um, I just see that some of this, you know, litigation is just really about law firms trying to get a quick score, a uh, quick settlement for plan sponsors who just want these cases to go away. And that's how I see it. And I'll be interested to see these plant sponsors are going to want to take this trial um, and, and win the case out. That's that's how I see it. Um, and um, uh, it should be interesting how that all plays out. And again, I just think it's completely absurd. Next, this will get me in a lot of trouble, but I think you have to be crazy. Uh, absolutely crazy. They're pushing crypto now. Yeah, sure. Now crypto's gone up about 5%. Bitcoin's now hovering near $21,000. But uh, I'm not going to say crypto is part of some kind of Ponzi scheme as other people do. I, I invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, my opinion is that uh, it's, it's ridiculous to push this investment when the Department of Labor said, I don't think it's a good idea. And, you know, when the Department of Labor says it's not a good idea, uh, I think you should take that heed to advice, especially when the um, you know bulletin that they put out 
basically said that any plan sponsor that's going to you know push you know, crypto in their 401k plan could be subject to an audit. I mean, that's the way I rate things. And, you know, again, 401k plan is one of the most heavy, heavily regulated uh, investment vehicles out there. Why would you ever, why would you ever allow an investment by something that's unregulated, such as Bitcoin, that is prone to cyber thieves? I mean, um, I'm a good, uh, I'm friends with Jerry Briscoe, who's a former pro wrestler, and he has a pot, I just name dropped. He has a video cast with a former wrestler called JBL, uh, uh, Justin uh, Bradshaw, just, uh, uh, Justin Layfield, whatever. And um, Layfield lost a lot of money. Uh, his uh, Coinbase wallet was, was stolen. And I don't know if he ever got the money back. I should actually actually, actually ask Jerry about that. But it was, uh, you know, these, these wallets are prone to, to theft. Uh, these are unregulated, volatile investments, and again, with all due respect to plan participants, they are the most, um, how do I say this, uh, I wouldn't say the word term naive, but they're the most unprepared when it comes to actual investments. Uh, their behavior, uh, listen, I, 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 I have investments in Bitcoin, I've seen it go down from $69,000 all the way down, I think it what was it, 15 or 16, and I've, hold, I've held on. My dollar cost averaging and all that kind of stuff, my basis is going to be less than 30. So I'm still in the red. I'm still down like 20-something percent, 30%. But that's me. I'm a hold investor. I'm not retiring now. Most plant participants, um, they like to lock in their losses. First sign of trouble, they move everything into fixed income. They sell all their, their equity positions after losing 15 20%. And they've locked in their losses. And so that's why I just don't think crypto is a really good idea for plan participants. Last but not least, uh, going back to conferences, you know, I started that 401k conference in 2018. Um, you know, again, the joke, I wasn't getting invited to speak at the, the, the large national events anymore. Uh, they're still using the same two to three uh, ERISA attorneys, and that's fine. Um and then I used to always, and, I, and, I, and I've spoken a lot of industry, small regional industry events. Um, years ago, a buddy of mine invited me to speak at, at some event at some local hotel. And, you know, all I remember is uh, the food, The you know, I always call it rubber chicken. Uh, so years ago, I, you know, based on that and, and based on the experience at, you know, seeing how much people pay for sponsorships at larger events. I started that 4K conference in 2018. Um, still, we're still, you know, even with COVID, we're still moving along. Um, 2019, we ran nine events. Uh, COVID has shown us that we can't do that anymore. Um, we're probably going to be down to, you know, four events a year, four to five events a year, and that's fine. Um We've held more than 20 of these. Uh, I've been lucky to be in parts of the country I never thought I'd ever be in. Uh, Kansas City, I think, is really at the top of my list. Seattle, I've, again, name-dropping. I've had some great guests over the years. Uh, top three off the top of my head, Andre Dawson, Steve Garvey, Tony Oliva. And we've had some great guests. You know, Dan Wilson, Seattle was great. We've always had great guests because Larry always provides some great folks. Um, and I'll be honest, because that's all I know how to be. 
listen, attendance has suffered as a, as a result of COVID. I, I haven't gone to any big national events lately. Uh, maybe I will in 2023. I, 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 there's one on my mind that I want to go to and just show up, wear a hockey jersey and just show up and walk around the floor and all that stuff. Um, I wish they were in Vegas in 2023, but they're not. But anyway, um, I could see from the pictures at the national events that they're suffering from attendance as well. Uh, the, the fact is, is that, again, I, I think that you know a large part of the audience uh, is never coming back to these events. Um, they will never come back. Uh, I don't know if that's 10% or 20%, but I just think that from now on, um, that's going to be the wave of the future. People, it's not that their people are afraid of getting COVID. Listen, I've had five shots. If I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. Um, but I think more, you know, importantly, I, I think that people, uh, don't want to travel. They don't, they, 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 you know, be, they had all this time where they weren't traveling and they're like, uh, it's too much time, too much work, too much expense. Why do I have to bother? Uh, it's just, that's the nature of things. The same thing with people who, you know, working from home, uh, don't want to go back to the office full time. They, you know, they, they've seen what life is like at home and they were able to do their work, um, cause the technology held up. And so that's why I think a large part of the audience, uh, is not never going to come back. They're going to want a virtual option or whatever it is. And, um, I think that, you know, when you're going to run an event, whether it's a big national event, but more importantly, when you're running smaller events, I think it's important to be unique and different. Uh, stop with the rubber chicken, go someplace else, something interesting. That's why, to me, a Major League Baseball stadium was an interesting way. You do a stadium tour, you kind of break it up with something interesting and fun. Um, you know, I, I remember the first idea for that 4K conference, we, we nixed it, where I, I, originally the idea was, oh, wow, well, you know, like a Comic-Con. I always was interested, like, comic-con stuff and it was just like i couldn't make that work where you know a comic-con is, is is you know is, is more of like you know people with tables selling stuff and getting autographs it really wasn't within the confines of a conference and you know the two plant providers who who were the initial ones for the city of field events like ah I, we don't see that and then i came up with the idea to hold it at the ballpark you know there's these conference areas that's unique place and platform to hold an event and like I said something different and something more importantly memorable I, I think that memories are the most important thing things that stand out and uh, you know I've been lucky in life uh, over you know since my kids have been you know older just these unique experiences and I mean it's great to go on Facebook and um, you know uh, have these you know albums of pictures and you could sometimes you just go through it and just see the, the memories that you've been able to do and I think that um, uh, memories something memorable uh, that goes a long way with people and uh, you know meeting you know a Tony Oliva or Steve Garvey or you know Andre Dawson for some advisors that, that's gonna stay with them they were at Wrigley Field, and you know they touched the ivy when they weren't supposed to. Well, actually, I'm sorry, that was only me. But what I'm saying is, is that um, it's all about memories. Making something memorable, making something stand out, and you know that's why you know uh, Barry Ritholtz. I think that uh, I think Mike Webb might have um, 
talked about it, and Mike Webb was kind enough to, to mention uh, that 4K conference, and that's why he's like, I, I think he took Barry's article. Um, and Barry um, had a really good article basically saying that, you know, these uh, these big national events have to be unique and different and, and, and trying to change it up. Um, you know, again, I haven't been to national events in a while. Um, I think that um, Barry hit the head on, you know, hit the nail on the head that, you know, you got to be different, unique, and and whatnot. And that, that's all I was trying to do at that 4K conference. Listen, attendance is not as good as it used to be, but um, I'm big on unique things. When I was vice president of the synagogue, uh, always mention that story you know they would rate they would always i i i just came up with fundraising ideas we had a fundraising chairman who didn't do a very good job they they kept on coming up with the same fundraising events the journal dinner dance and casino night and i said why don't we have an event where we could bring in people who aren't members and their money is just as good as the members money and i always feel like when it came to membership dues and all that stuff and asking for fundraising, you can only go to the well so many times with, you know, a synagogue that, you know, only had 300 families or whatever it was. So I booked an event because Doug Goodstein's a friend of mine. I was able to get Sal Stockbroker to the synagogue. Now, we did get two or three criticisms from members about, you know, Sal's act. But we drew over 200 people. Um, had I not listen to the folks over there uh, and raise ticket prices. Ticket prices for, I think we only charge 40 bucks. We should charge 50 bucks. And if had we charged 50 bucks, I still think we would have pocketed that extra 2,000 bucks. But it was something unique, something memorable. And again, it drew a lot of people who aren't members. And like I said, their, mom, their money's better in the sense that, uh, you know, it's limitless and, and whatnot in, in the sense that you have such a bigger audience. But that's how I see things. You know, that 4K conference, we're still going to be back next year. Still going to go on. My son is trying to plot where we're going to end up. Um, we got that virtual event, which is, to me, like a, a presentation of what, you know, like a flavor of that 4K conference, the live events. Be a little bit different, you know, two days. But, you know, go to that 4K site.com for further information. Detroit will be there on May 3rd. That's going to be a Wednesday. We did that. Tigers are playing the Mets. And we'll see how we proceed for 2023. There's one venue in New York we have to run, and hopefully Larry can book it for us. So um, uh, that's it for this week's episode. A little bit longer than usual, a little bit more long-winded uh, than usual. Uh, go to that 4 for further information on all our live events. Thanks.